I love Testimony Sundays, especially when it's spouses, because there's going to be an interesting conversation in the Brock house tonight. <laughs> Ava, you did great, by the way. All right, so I want to begin with an easy question. This is, this is a softball. Uh, anyone ever met a king? Really? Anyone? Anyone ever been in a palace? I didn't think so. Uh, I haven't, for, for sure. Um, we are a culture and 2,000 years away from all this royal imagery that we're going to look at this morning. So many things that we think we understand, and maybe we do, um, but it had a lot more significance to a culture that was led by and identified by their kings. You were, if you look at the history of Israel, they rose and fell by the character of their, their king. And so this was embedded in their culture, embedded in their, their, their DNA, um, but by and large, this is foreign to us. And so there's a lot of symbolism within this, this passage, and it paints a picture. And so what I want to do this morning is a brief biblical theology study that's going to show the contrast to what Jesus received at the hands of the Romans, what Jesus truly deserved, uh, and what that means for believers. So, uh, since we've got a lot of ground to cover, I do want to jump into our text. But I want to give you an idea of what we're going to be doing. So, uh, you see three divisions in your outline. We're going to look at this passage from three different perspectives and through three different lenses. So, uh, we're going to pull a lot out of these short five, or five short verses. Mark 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were spitting, or excuse me, they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning, grant us wisdom and insight into what your spirit would desire us to learn. We can often breeze past passages we've read so many times and either dwell on the brutality or just be indifferent to its significance for us. I ask this morning you would teach us, you would guide us, uh, and that I would get out of the way and that your word would transform us this morning. That we would be renewed by it. That our errant thoughts and our worries and our fears would be taken captive by it. And if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, who stands with Rome and not with Christ, that you would pierce their heart, that your word would separate the bone and marrow, the spirit and soul, and bring them to new life and repentance and faith. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we do have to build off of last week. And remember last week, the gospel writers do not focus on the physical brutality. It's mentioned, but it's mentioned as a historical fact. It's not embellished. It's not elaborated. What is more important, though, is in an honor and shame culture, 
the mocking and the disrespect is more at issue here. That you would put someone so low, let alone the king of the universe, that you would humiliate him in every way you possibly can, this offense would be more egregious to the reader than any harm they would do to his body. Because in that culture, much more than in ours, your reputation, your, your honor was everything. And they did everything they could to diminish Jesus's. So the first thing I want you to get is that if you haven't been here through our Mark study for a while, Jesus predicted this time three times. And the most clear was in chapter 10 of Mark. And the disciples hopefully still have this in mind. This is uh, Mark 10, 33 and 34. So this is about a week before and they're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. If you're a disciple and you hear this, you're like, where is this coming from? You can't picture this in your mind. But now, Jesus' words must be ringing in their heads because it's, it's all coming true. And here's how we're going to unfold this. So the first lens we're going to look through, what he receives. This is what type of king they thought he was. This is the type of king that they treated him as. First thing I want you to see. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. I want you to get an idea of the scene here. Because we don't understand the, the grand scheme of this. And um, so the, the historians, um, Josephus and, and Philo, believe that it was Herod's palace. This is Herod's palace. So Herod is the one who rebuilt the temple three times larger than Solomon did. This is his modest little palace. And if we believe then that the governor was headquartered here, and um, Herod wasn't always in Jerusalem, but when he came, he had to have some nice digs to, to, to sleep in. This was so large that uh, it's said to have had sleeping quarters for 100 guests. So picture what's going on here. Last week, you see the front steps there at the very bottom. The chief priest brought Jesus. They wouldn't even take a step on the steps because they didn't want to come into contact with anything that had anything to do with Gentiles. They stood at the bottom. They presented Jesus. Pilate brings him inside, interviews him, brings him back out, says, I find no fault with him. They all shoot, shout, crucify him. Uh, and then he's brought back in, he's, he's flogged, and now there's another movement. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. In the Greek, this is literally the inner courtyard. See that whole big space there? He's brought in there. Now, to give you an idea of how big that is, this battalion is a Roman cohort about 600 soldiers. So he's brought in one man, 600 soldiers surrounding him. So as we get into all these details, this is not a handful of guys. This is 600 well-armed, well-trained Roman killers in this palatial courtyard about to do what is done to Jesus here. The first thing they did and together, this whole battalion, they clothe them in a purple cloak. Now, most of you may know that purple is the, the color of royalty. 
It was a very expensive dye. It wasn't easy to get your, your hands on. And so if, if you had purple garments, it was very expensive. And there's many references to purple within the scriptures. Now, they didn't do this to honor him. They did this to mock him. You want to be a king? We're going to put a purple robe on you. And so not only did they put a purple robe on him, but they put a, a, a crown on him. So Roman leaders would, would, would twist uh, uh, what would be a wreath or some kind of branches or, or vines. And in a special occasion, they would, they would uh, dip it in gold and put it on their head. And so the word for, for crown here is, is, is a Greek word that just means to encircle. It's Stephanos, which is where we get the, the name Stephanie and Stephen. Both come from the name crown. So they, they put this crown, this thing that encircles his head, uh, to mock him. But it wasn't the, the, uh, the um, what would normally be put on a Roman leader. They made a crown of thorns to increase the humiliation, but also increase the pain. You want to be called a king? We're going to show you what type of king we really think you are. And so this just adds insult and injury both. So they got the purple cloak on him the crown of thorns, and they begin to salute him. Now, we think of army salutes. We don't know exactly what it is. Uh, the, the Roman salute would differ depending on who they were approaching. If it was depending on uh, where their authority lies. It could, it could be a handshake. It could be a kiss. It could be some kind of arm gesture. We're not sure. But all of these soldiers are making this, this movement as they would make toward Caesar. So all of them are joining in this, this mockery, this salute. And they cry, hail, would be the, the term that would be given to the most, the most high ruler. Same word for praise. Praise or, 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 or rejoice is more the literal translation. Rejoice. They would only say hail to Caesar. So this, the Romans took specific offense to the claim of king. Because there is no king but Caesar in their eyes. So when they say rejoice, the king of the Jews is here, it is complete and utter mockery. He's a joke to them. They're adding every bit of insult that they can. But yet, like Pilate, even in their rebellion, even in their sin, they can't help but witness to who Jesus is. Even in their their hatred of him, they are still speaking the truth. Rejoice, the king of the Jews. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that they made a spectacle of him. They must, with a thirst for blood, they must make him feel their wrath. And they were striking his head with a reed. Now this is probably a papyrus reed, but a similar consistency to bamboo. This is not gentle. They would take this, this reed, uh, same word for uh, a staff often or a measuring rod or an arrow, an arrow staff. Like it's hard enough to make an arrow from and they were beating him in the head with it. We don't know if it was one or, or many. Um, you got to really hate someone to continually beat him in the head. Not only that, they were spitting on him. Now this, this translates well. I don't know what it is about spitting, but in every culture... It is, it is the, the highest form of disrespect if someone is going to spit on you. And so all of this compounded, they pay, they begin kneeling down and paying homage to him. This literally is worship. 
This is the word to prostrate yourself. The idea here is to fall on your face and kiss the ground before a deity. They're falling on their, their faces in mock worship. This paying homage is the ESV translates it. Again, picture this. This chaotic scene of these saluting, mocking, spitting, bowing Roman soldiers, 600 of them. Wanting to show him what type of king they thought he was. And this is the mockery that is described in verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him out of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They thought right there they were taking away his kingly crown. We're going to show you what type of king we think you are. And then we're going to take it all away and show you that we have the power. We're going to put this king business to bed. And we're going to show you the full might and power and rage of the Roman army. This is what he does. This is what they do, excuse me. And they led him away to crucify him. Now, if you've been in church for some time, you've probably heard what the the crucifixion process is, and so we're not going to get into that. But here's what you do need to know. The crucifixion process is and, and, and was the most painful, the most egregious torment that the world has ever come up with, and it was only reserved for the most ruthless criminals. It was only reserved for the worst of the worst, so bad that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. Even if a Roman citizen is a mass murderer, he could not be crucified. Cicero, the Roman historian, calls this, calls it, what do you say, cruel and disgusting. Even Romans thought this was cruel and disgusting. The worst of the worst that they could throw at him. It's pretty depressing, huh? And uh, some of you might be saying, wait, we're done with the text already? Like, Tim, are you feeling okay? Because this, this, this doesn't seem right. Uh, you would be right. Uh, but stopping here is like saying, all right, there's bad news and there's bad news. Any good news? Nope, just bad news. Maybe you like being an Orlando Magic fan or a Detroit Lions fan. Sorry, David. And, um, or maybe just like watching the news in general. But typically when I hear this taught, it is leaned into, and you go into all of the, the, the graphic details, and everyone leaves so burdened because of what happened to Jesus. And let's be honest, the old adage that Benjamin Franklin came up with, if it bleeds, it leads, we like bad news. We like, this is why people are glued to the news every day. Because there's, we, we, we like to be afraid, we like, to, we, we like the, sensation, the sensationalism of it all, but I don't want to end there. And we're not going to lean in here for the shock value. Because this is one moment in history. And so we're not going to get caught up in this, because this suffering is for the moment, but the joy comes in the morning. And most importantly, this is not our king. So now is here we have, where we have some fun. So this is fun for me, uh, you're going to see in a moment. And may not be fun for you, but it should be. Uh, so Bible nerds out there, I grew up in a time when nerd was not a compliment. This is meant to be a compliment. Uh, Bible nerds out there, we're going to have some fun. We're going to mine the scriptures and peel back a lot of this imagery and shows uh, that we can see Christ's glory in it. So full disclosure, there is going to be a lot of parallels. Uh, and so I want you to stay on track with me. And um, so 
If you can't follow along, they're going to be up on the screen. John, you're going to hope you had your coffee or monster this morning. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to stay with me. So I want you to keep on track with me. And uh, Ivo, we're going to put those sword drill skills to use. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up Baptist, but I kind of get the idea. Is it like you put, put your Bible down and they give you a passage and you just got to flip it open? Okay. So that's, you'll be doing a lot of that. Oh, you got to put your hand on top? Okay. All right. I guess I've got something to learn. Okay. So that's what we're doing. And if it's your first time here, this will not be a typical sermon, but it is typical of how we view the scriptures. This is how we view the scriptures. When we read the scriptures, uh, for many of us, this is how our minds are going. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, how does this passage point us to or teach us about Christ? This text is pregnant with imagery. It's a very, uh, it's, it's a theological term that means it is, it, it, is, it is swollen, it is bulging, it is full of life, and we're going to pull a lot of it out. And this, this morning, is going to be a great example of our vision of how teaching truth exalts Christ. So as we open the scriptures, we're going to look at how each one of these details exalts and points us to Christ. So here's the second lens that we're going to view this text through. First, it was what he received. Now it is what he deserves. This is what type of king he truly is. So again, keep up with me if you can. If not, I'd rather have you stay with me and you can look at the screen. So first, they are in Herod's palace, which is pretty impressive. Um, it's still up there. And um, for that, that time, it would be impressive. But it is nothing to the God who created the universe, and there is no house that man can build for him. So uh, if you're impressed by Herod's house, I want to talk about what type of house that Jesus built. So look at Hebrews chapter 3. So Jesus told his disciples, I am going away to my father's house to prepare a room for you. And the writer of Hebrews gives this picture of a house and the rooms that will be built. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were, spoken, that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, he is brought into the grandest palace in Jerusalem. But he is building a spiritual house. And he goes away to prepare rooms in his father's house. More on that later. But um, the old language of, it, it is a mansion that has many mansions within it. It is a good picture of the, the royalty of our king. Second thing I want you to see, that they bring a cohort against him. This is pretty intimidating. This is 600 Roman officers, this battalion. But look at what Matthew 26 says. When they're in the garden just a few hours earlier, and Peter draws out his sword, and he thinks, okay, now we're going into battle. This is Matthew 26, verse 52. So Peter cuts off the ear. Jesus puts it back on, and here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, we don't understand these, these numbers. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. 
Jesus says, I can bring more than 12 legions. And whenever you see 12 biblically, the numerology is, is it's, it's representative of the whole. That's why there are 12 tribes. It represents all of Israel. So I can bring all the hosts of heaven, and there's more than 12 of them. I can bring 120,000, or excuse me, 120 times more angels than are surrounding Jesus right now in Herod's palace. There are 6,000 uh, soldiers or angels within a legion, and Jesus can bring 12, more than 12 of them. So right now it seems a little intimidating that there's a whole cohort that is mocking and beating him, but Jesus says, I can just ask my father at any time I can bring them. But why doesn't he? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This must happen. This had to happen. So Jesus' kingship is not in jeopardy here. He is actually accomplishing it and maintaining it by not calling down these legions of angels. So back in Mark, they bring him in the palace. They bring out the, the cohort. The first thing they do is they put this, this purple robe on him. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus, where they're building the tabernacle, 26 times there is a mention of either purple cloth or purple thread so that God's dwelling place would be completely covered in purple that it would be robed in, in majesty, in splendor, that it would be the richest dwelling in all of Israel by far. Now, here in our text, we have Emmanuel, God with us, God tabernacling among man, covered in purple for a moment. But he will be the final temple. And when we see him next, he will be arrayed in splendor more than anything man can bring together uh, and, and any, more than any man-made fabric. So for a time, he's mocked with a purple robe, but I want you to see how he has been clothed before the beginning of time through all the ages. Look at, look at Psalm 93. Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This is our king. God with us, even though he took on flesh, this is who he truly is and always has been and always will be. So they tried to mock him with this crown. And although he's fully a king, crowned in glory, he's humbled for a time. And this is to fulfill the Father's plan. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews, we spent a lot of time in this book. The first chapter is always greater than the angels. And the, the second chapter is greater than, than all of mankind. Um, but look at the language here. Quoting Psalm 8 in verse 6, Hebrews chapter 2. It has been testified somewhere. Uh, they didn't have chapter and verses then. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What does that mean? The writer explains, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. His crown, his control over all things. This is important. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He is king right now, 
but we don't see it. It seems like the world is in chaos. It seems like the, the world will not bow down to him, but right now he reigns over all things, and we don't yet see it, but it is promised. But we see him, verse 9, uh, for a little while, while he was made lower than the angels, not in importance or glory, but, but kind of station where the angels are still in heaven. He's on earth. Namely, Jesus coming to earth, crowned with glory and honor. So he has his crown of heaven. He comes to earth to earn the crown of glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So he is king of all the universe, but now he is king of mankind as well, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we see this king from all eternity coming down to be lower than the angels for a time so that he can stand in the place of man, so that he can rise as their, their king and taste death for everyone who will put their faith in him. This is the type of crown he has. Now what's interesting about the thorns Anyone remember where the first time we see thorns in Scripture is? Genesis 3. The thorns are one of the signs of the fall. The thorns and the, 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 the thistles are going to be the reminder that you live in a fallen world, that the ground is going to fight against you. Jesus takes on the sign of the fall on himself. The curse is now on him. These thorns, it would be to be a reminder of the curse of mankind, the curse of all creation, he takes upon himself. It is fitting that it is placed on him. And yeah, that's Genesis 3, 18. So they put the robe, they put the crown, and then they say, hail, or rejoice. They saw him and mocked. But as we saw on Wednesday night, we don't see him and rejoice. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Two books over to your right if you're, in, if you're in Hebrews. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. They mock him and say, rejoice, king of the Jews right in front of their face, and they miss it. We don't have to see him. The Holy Spirit has opened our eyes so that we can see him, and we rejoice. Hail our king. And they also got his kingship wrong. They mock him as king of the Jews. They think he's pitiful and powerless. But his kingdom, as we saw last week, and he explained to Pilate, is not of this world. But his kingdom was prophesied 700 years before in the covenant with David. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what type of king he will be. And the details here are important for us. This is God making this covenant with, with David. And um, David had, would make a lot of mistakes. And so... There is, this is a, a, a bilateral covenant, meaning there, there, there are two levels to this. Beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Now this would be uh, partial, this would be promised in Solomon and partially fulfilled with him. But you'll see some things that Solomon will fulfill, but Solomon, something Solomon can't fulfill. 
Solomon could fulfill that your offspring would come from your body. So this is important. This is why Matthew starts with a genealogy to show that Jesus does in fact descend from David. He would come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon, of course, builds a temple. David couldn't. He had blood in his hands. But as we saw in Hebrews, Jesus is building a house in his name that will never pass away. Going on. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now Solomon's going to reign for a long time, but he's not reigning that long. And as we've seen, the, the reign of Judah gets, gets wiped out a couple hundred years later. Let's, let's continue. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's partial with, with Solomon, but it's in the fullness in Christ the Son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So this is the, the uh, federal responsibility. If you're the head of the covenant, if you're the head of the nation, and you err, you, you sin, you will be punished. Well, that applies to Solomon, but not to Jesus. But the psalmist in Psalm 89 interprets this for us. In Psalm 89, it reads, when his children commit iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod, with the stripes of men. So this is partially fulfilled in Solomon, but ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The sins of, of this king, uh, if you're looking for that, Psalm 89, verses 30 through, through 32. Uh, so this king will take on the stripes of his children. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Saul, the Holy Spirit, came on and, and went off. Um, that's partially fulfilled in Solomon, but his steadfast love will never depart from his son, whom I will put away before you. Speaking of Solomon. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Solomon could never live up to that. Judah could never live up to that. But only Jesus could. This is the king of the Jews. This is the true king of the Jews that they missed, but that was prophesied in the reign of David. Now, he's robed, he's crowned, he's praised, and now they're beating him on the head. Here's the irony here. They are striking the head of the one who will crush the head of their king. They are striking him on the head, but he is the promised one in Genesis 3.15, a couple verses before the thorns, who will crush the head of the serpent. But this head is not stricken ultimately. This head is not beaten with a staff. It is given a scepter. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Look at the promise interpreted from Psalm 45 here. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. They beat his head. God anointed his head. They beat him with a staff. God gave him a scepter, the ruling spear of a king with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's a great contrast there between how they treat him and how he is exalted by God the Father. Just a little free bonus. They beat him on the head and they, and, and they spit on him. The irony here is rich because remember what Jesus' spit does. Jesus spits and heals eyes and tongues. John 9, 6 
Mark 7.13, in case you're interested. Going on to the next one. They kneel before him in mockery. But every tongue, tribe, nation will kneel before him. You probably know where I'm going here. Uh, Philippians 2. Now, I want to look at the text and the referent, what it's pointing back to. Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They are kneeling now, but one, one day they will, or they, they already have knelt before him in, in horror because they will one day face his judgment. But I want you to see what Paul is quoting here. Look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. Look at who this is referring to. It's a direct quote from Isaiah 45, 23. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Salvation comes from the only God. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Meaning the one and only God, the only source of salvation. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every tongue confess. By quoting this, Paul is saying this Jesus, he is God. He is the only God, the only source of salvation. You will all kneel before him one day. But their mockery is not a surprise either. Go a couple chapters to your right in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50 is, is setting up. We've spent so much time in Isaiah 53. We're not going to go there again. But Isaiah 53, is, or excuse me, Isaiah 50 is setting up Isaiah 53. This passage is, is contrasting the rebellion of Israel. Israel that's just shaking their fist and hating God, but yet the faithfulness of the suffering servant. Look at the details, though, in verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. That will come later. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before. Sorry, David was 1,500 years before. I, I said that earlier. I had my time frame wrong. Look at verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and know that I, will, I shall not be put to shame. This was all seen 700 years before. He would be mocked. He would be spit on. He would, he would give his back freely to them, but he knew he would not be put to shame. Then the next detail in Mark, after they mock him in all this, they lead him, they led him to be crucified. As we've already seen in Isaiah 53 in, and in Acts 2, it was the Father's will and the Father's perfect plan to crucify him. He is sovereign over all this. They think they have the upper hand, but they're playing right into God's hand. And then the last detail, they lead him away to be crucified. This is also fitting because crucifixion was reserved for the worst crimes, for the worst of the worst. And it's appropriate because he would take on all the sins of his own, the worst sins. He would take on the murderers, the adulterers, 
the thieves, the greedy, the liars. And that's just the people in this room. It was fitting that the worst death that man could conjure up was given to him because that was fitting for our sin that he took on us. And if you don't think that you're a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, and a liar, read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he will correct that. But what's more important for us to see is that this is all what God intended to do the entire time. Look at John 3. So crucifixion is Jesus spoke of as being lifted up. This is also a fulfillment. His resurrection and ascension are tied together here. This is John 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. So Jesus says that he's trying to get them to understand. I wouldn't ascend back if I didn't come from heaven in the first place. This is my, my home but the Son of Man, he says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you don't remember that interchange, we're not going to go back to that. Um, yes, some of you Bible nerds, again, full, full compliment, are going to be like, hey, you didn't think about this. What about this? You know who you are. Um, I'm just scratching the surface. I can't pull them all out. But the basic idea is when Israel rebelled, uh, a, a serpent was put up on a staff. And if they kept their eyes on it, they would, they would, they would be saved. But here's what's interesting. By being put up, by being lifted up, that serpent was the source of the salvation. Jesus, by being lifted up on the cross, puts the serpent to death. He defeats the serpent, therefore becoming their salvation. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the context of everyone's favorite verse. Don't get so committed to the, the section summaries. This rolls right into, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the context. The son who comes down from heaven, who is lifted up on the cross and goes back to heaven. If you put your faith in him and trust in him, you will have eternal life. This is where we get John 3.16. You cannot have John 3.16 without the eternal son, come down to earth, crucified, and ascended back. There's so much theology built up in John 3.16. All right. So that was our second section. I'm doing better on time than I thought I would. All right. We got time. We got time. <laughs> uh, I don't think everybody agrees with you guys, but uh, I'm going to still keep to my, my, my timetable. So the gospel's good news not like the news that we mentioned earlier. And so I want to ask you a real question. Because I know many of you and had conversations with many of you. What if you could turn on the news and it was good all the time? It was always encouraging. What would you turn in if every time you turned on your TV it was something good and something encouraging? Don't lie. You like the blood and the gore and the sensationalism. But let's just say you, you answer that, and, I, and I hopefully you do. That's what the scriptures are. Every page of the scriptures are good news, and we just, we just, we just scratched, scratched the surface in our last section. We're going to do some more in just a moment. Every time you open the scriptures, if you're reading it rightly, it points to and it glorifies Christ. It reminds you that God's plan of redemption is being worked out. God is saving a people for himself. God sent his son to die 
so that he would be lifted up as king, so that he would rule forever and that we would be brought into his household. We'd be adopted as sons of God. Brothers of the king living in a mansion. This is the good news that is on every page of the scriptures. And what I love about this church and what I love about Wednesday night Bible study is we get excited about these things. We will, I will happily wear the banner of Bible nerd with you. Let's do it together. So we got one more section. What he bestows. This is kind of a kingly word for what he gives. It is, it, it is kind of a, a higher version of of a gift that someone does not deserve. This risen Christ becomes king, but that he didn't do that in isolation. He did that. So here's a couple things you need to know about kings. You cannot have a king if he does not have a people and a land. There is, there is no king without subject, and there is no king without a kingdom. He's got a kingdom and he's got a people. That's why he came to be king over the same promise that was given to Abraham, land and seed, people and a land for his possession. That's what we see at the end of the scriptures. He will be their God, they will be his people, and they will live in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth forever. This king came to establish a kingdom. This king, this spiritual kingdom, this kingdom promised to David that would never end. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're a member of that kingdom. You are a citizen there, and nothing can take that away from you because Jesus secured it. Amen? Amen. Now let's unpack this for us for just a moment. We talked about the house that he went away to build earlier, this, 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 this house that is um, build, built for God that way outrivals the palace of Herod. Look at John chapter 14, if you're still in John. John chapter 14, looking at the first four verses. In this life, what do we do with Jesus' kingship right now? Let not your hearts be troubled. Why does Jesus begin there? One, because he's about to be, he, all this is about to happen. This is hours before everything happens, but this is also written to us. He knows we are fearful, troubled people. If you remember anything in my absence, remember this. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. This is a promise you can take to the bank. This is the type of king I am. I'm preparing my kingdom and I'm preparing it for you. And I'm coming back. That where I am, you may be also. Why? Because I love you enough to want you to be with me. And you know the way to go where I am going. What's the way? Next verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He's building this, this kingdom. Okay, let's flesh this out a little bit more. What does this mean for us right now when life sucks sometimes? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is a great book for comfort. The end of chapter 4 is the light momentary affliction in our body that is, that, that is wasting away. But look at the, rea the present reality for Christians. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Saints, anyone else feel like this? As your body breaks down, as the world disappoints you, as difficult day after difficult day happens, this is our hope. This is our citizenship. This is our destination. There is a home for us in the heavens, not made by hands. It cannot be taken away from us. This is why we of all people should be hopeful people. Amen. Amen. And if Jesus went away to make that room for you, that means if you've got a room in the palace, you're a son with all the rights and the inheritance of God's massive fortune of eternal riches that he is preparing for you. You can be poor in this life or rich in this life. But in the kingdom that is to come, we store up treasures that will not be taken away there. So that's the house in contrasting to Herod's palace. Herod surrounds them with this battalion, this cohort of 600 ruthless soldiers. It has nothing to, nothing on the cloud of great witnesses. Look at Revelation chapter 7. They may surround him with 600 soldiers. Look who will surround us. Look who surrounds him in the, the, the throne room of God and will surround him for all of eternity. This is Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. You know what's better than purple? White. Purple may be royalty, but white is purity. It is, it is righteousness. It means you are lacking nothing. There is no spot, no blemish. You are perfect. I would rather be perfect than royal any day. Amen. And so here is what is surrounding Jesus now, what John sees in this vision. And crying out with a loud voice, with palm branches in their hands, he was beaten with a staff. They are surrounded with palm branches, the branch of the welcoming king. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. This is the picture right now. This is the reality for every saint. This great cloud of witnesses that went before us in Hebrews 12 is pictured here. This gathering of the saints that we look forward to one day is pictured here. So don't fret about the Roman army surrounding Jesus. Next one, crown. The battalion, the purple, now the crown. Paul tells us that we have two types of crowns. We actually have a crown right now in this life. What is it? Philippians 4, chapter, or Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. I bet you don't normally think about this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Do you consider this? If you are a member of the body of Christ, and this is why we take membership so seriously, because if you have faith, in Christ, if you are united to him and united to one another, we are a joy and crown to one another. Paul sees the churches as his crown. This is what gives me joy. This is what surrounds, it encircles my head that I have brothers and sisters who trust in Jesus. What else do I need? This is all the treasure I need on this earth. This is the reminder that I am royalty 
that I can meet a believer from the other side of the planet and immediately we have all things in common. This is a beautiful picture of a crown that we have now. But there's even a better one coming. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. We'll get there later in the book. Paul, or excuse me, Peter speaks to the elders who lead well. But this applies to all believers. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You have a crown now in Christian fellowship in Christ, but there is an unfading crown of glory that is yours forever. And Paul uses the race analogy. This is why we compete. This is why we run the Christian life, because we're competing for a crown. Not because if you compete well enough, it will be given to you. It's because it is already yours. It is guaranteed And you want to finish well. You want to embrace it when he returns or when he brings you home. His crown of thorns turns into our crown of glory. Next one. They hail him. They they rejoice. Falsely. But we can rejoice in any circumstance. Why I love Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Because of what we have in Christ, they mock rejoice. We are the strangest people on the planet because we can rejoice in suffering. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We should should rejoice because of what we have in Christ. If you're justified, we should rejoice. Amen? Amen. Not only that, though, but we rejoice in our suffering, crazy Christians, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God the Son gives us God the Spirit to teach us how to rejoice in suffering. This is the type of king we have. But that king is mocked. He, he is mocked as king, but he's mocked so we can become royalty. 1 Peter 2, 9. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. One of my favorite passages in the book. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are in Christ, you are chosen, elect in him, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Why are we a people who tell? Because this is who Jesus says we are. How could we not tell of him who has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, through the cross. Two more. He was beaten on his head, but now he is the head of our covenant, the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet. This is kingship again, subjection. Gave him as the head over all things to the church. This is a gift to the church. Christ is your head. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are united to Christ. We are his own possession. 
Lastly, he was crucified, to, uh, crucified for us. Back to Romans, Romans chapter 6. And because of his death, we must die to ourselves, but we get to live to Christ. Uh, I would love to read this, this whole section. I'll pick up in verse 5, though. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, here's what his crucifixion means for us, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He must die so that we can die. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead. He will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how we view the cross. This is how we view Jesus' humiliation, his torment, his, his torture, because it leads to his death our death to our old self, and our new life in him. Last passage, I promise. But the next time we see Jesus, the imagery is all there, but it's quite different. Look at Revelation 19. Look at all the details here. When Jesus returns, here's what the world's going to see. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. These are jewels in a crown. They mock him with a crown. Now he's got eyes of flaming fire and this jeweled crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Look at his robe now. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Because he will be destroying his enemies. His robe is purple now for a different reason. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is what declares it to us and confirms it for us. What are the armies of heaven? Remember the, the battalion is nothing. Here's these legions of angels that Jesus is talking about. The armies of heaven, they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. It's nothing on the weapons of, or the weapons of Rome have nothing on it. With which to strike down the nations. They will strike him for a time, but he will be the final one striking them down. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. Same idea here. This, this, this staff, they will strike him with this puny reed. He will strike them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You think the wrath of Rome is intimidating? Wait till you see the wrath of God. But what's the final title here? On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is King of the, king of the Jews, but he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Meditate on this. Christian, this should embolden you. This should encourage you. You should rejoice in this because he truly deserves all the glory and honor he already possesses. He didn't need anything to be added to him. 
but he did this for us. All the scripture, all the covenants, all the promises are fulfilled in him. And we just looked at a glimpse this morning. He came to fulfill this, this new covenant as its head, as its king. And those in that covenant have all of the spiritual blessings in Christ. Amen. But to secure that covenant, he took on the worst that the world has to offer. Mocked, beaten, crucified for us. Hail our king who our father sent for us. This truly is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We rejoice in your plan of salvation. We rejoice in your love for your own. We rejoice that we were once not a people, yet now we are a people. We rejoice, we rejoice that we are turned from paupers into princes, beggars into royalty. Jesus as our head, as our king, as our brother. Lord, forgive us when we lose the awe and wonder of your scriptures. Forgive us when we look to the world for good news. When we forget your promises. We forget the realities of what we possess. And Lord, I just pray if anyone here this morning is looking for good news anywhere else, would you see, help them see the vanity of it that it is empty and it cannot, cannot fill them. Spirit, would you turn their eyes and their hearts to Jesus, that they would repent and put their trust in him. For those of us who know Christ, let us live for him. Let us live as ambassadors of the king, as messengers, as heralds. Our king is victorious, king of kings and lord of lords. He reigns supreme. And you don't want to be on the other end of his sword when he returns. But the good news is anyone who sets their eyes on him, on the one who is lifted up, they will believe and have eternal life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.